Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. In May of 2022, Becca Lucas-Lord resigned from her role as VP, Director of Client Services at Wonderman Thompson. She was ready to explore new opportunities that complemented her recent agency work. Well, that sabbatical lasted all of three days before she was asked to return in a consulting role. When you look at the breadth of Becca's resume, it's easy to see why they wanted her back. Besides Wonderman Thompson, Becca's career includes time at Conan Wolf, Sequentia and Veronics, Twist Image, and Miram. She has worked on all categories from automotive, CPG, pharmaceuticals, and even petroleum pipelines. Becca Lucas-Lord stops by to chat about growing up in London, Ontario, why she took a year off from university, her career journey from coordinator to VP, and the decision to move into consulting. So I guess you could say I'm a a bit of a free agent these days. Um, I have been working most recently as a consultant uh, and an opportunity actually with uh, the agency that I've been with for some time came up and it and it really kind of introduced me to the 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 beauty of (laughs) consulting. Um, I you know, uh, over the last, I guess, almost year now, uh, I've been working with Wonderman Thompson. So I previously held the position of uh, vice president, director of client service, and sort of slash business lead. So I can talk about that in a second. Um, but an opportunity came up um, following uh, my resignation from Wonderman Thompson to stay on with them, um, which was really exciting. And it kind of came about by virtue of a new client that we had just started to work with. Um, and, uh, you know, they were interested in having me kind of come back, if you will, um, and stay on as a consultant to sort of build a team. And uh, it was really an opportunity that I honestly could not uh, could not pass up, um, you know, loving the team. Uh, from WT as I do. And uh, this this new client was really juicy. It was exciting. It was also an opportunity to build um, kind of what I'm calling a mini WPP team. So uh, it was a group of us um, from Wonderman Thompson, Mindshare and Hill and Knowlton all coming together to to service this client. So got a chance to um, to try to try to try my hand at consulting, um, which has been really interesting and and to be honest, kind of opened the door for me um, to think about uh, how I might want to do more of this uh, in this industry and and kind of beyond. Um, but taking it back uh, for the last several years. Um, Prior to my consulting uh, time, I was uh, vice president at Wonderman Thompson and uh, WT had, well, I was previously at Wonderman and I, as I like to say, I kind of came in through the Wonderman door. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as many listening will know, WPP brought together Miram, Wonderman and J. Walter Thompson in a global merger. And so uh, coming together with that organization Having spent some time on the Wonderman side uh, prior to that, um, I held the position of vice president. And so there were a couple of other folks like myself at senior levels who were responsible for running almost like an agency within an agency. So I oversaw a business unit um, and uh, it was a you know book of business, significant chunk of revenue and uh you know, was really looking after, um, along with a couple of colleagues, uh, people, product, and and profit. So 
um, it was uh, not just about the discipline of, of, you know, director of client service, although I did definitely uh, play a role in supporting that for the agency. Um, it was really almost like being kind of a managing director of your own, your own agency within the agency. Becca, thank you so much for dropping by today. You and I have been trying to do this for a while, so I'm glad <laughs> we were able to get this chat on the books. Let's yeah. go back to the beginning. Where are you from? London, Ontario. And what was life like growing up in London? London is kind of a it's a it's a pretty decent sized city that feels sometimes like a small town. Um, so, you know, definitely had kind of a, a very maybe traditional <laughs> suburban uh, upbringing. Um, but I think London's a good city to grow up in. They call it the forest city and it certainly lives up to that uh, that name. Um, you know, it's a it's a college and university town, um, but honestly, that was pretty lost on me growing up. Other than the fact that, you know, I I, I did some sports and 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 kind of you know visited the university campus. Uh, you know, my parents had gone to Western, and so um, yeah. But growing up in London, I have to say, was pretty good. Did it feel like a university town though? Because we already talked about the size of it. We said that it's one of one of the bigger cities in Canada, but it's something like like as of today, isn't it something like more than seven hundred thousand people there? It's definitely north of uh, six hundred. That's for sure. If you look at some of the smaller smaller cities in the United States, like Columbus, that have NHL teams, just based on population numbers, like London, Ontario, should have an NHL team. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's funny. I, I don't know exactly whether it's the 10th largest or 9th or 11th, but it kind of hovers around that spot. And like you said, it's it's on par with some pretty decent sized cities that we, we think of in the States. Um, and the thing that's unique about London, too, is there's nothing around it. Like, yes, that's a good point. You know, it's surrounded by farmland. And to be honest, like that's one of the things having moved back here from Toronto recently. Um, I don't think I appreciated when I was growing up here, but I really appreciate it now. I mean, you can, within 45 minutes, you can be in, you know, lakeside, Lake Erie or Lake Huron. There's all these beautiful little cottage towns that are, you know, half an hour away. You're are surrounded you, are you referring by, to like Grand Bend, for example? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I like to stay a little north of Grand Bend uh, these days because I'm not 17 and drinking Bud Light. But I think um, <laughs> that what people I, do in Grand Bend. <laughs> it's I, like it's like one of those like Wasaga kind of, you know, it. No, I, in all fairness, I think there's um, there's a lot of like really nice, beautiful developments that have kind of sprung up. But I always think of like Grand Bend's where you go to party in high school. You know, it's like it's got the drag and it's got like the bars and um, yeah. But, I, you know, there's beautiful um, little like towns like Bayfield and. Godrich and Concarden and Port Elgin, all the way up the coast of Lake Huron. And we went to cottages there growing up and yeah, have kind of a, a special affection for for Lake Huron. My wife and I got engaged uh, at my family's cottage, um, you know, overlooking the sunset. And so have a little bit of a, a romance with, uh, with Lake Huron. So it's part of what I roll into London. But yeah, London's a really pretty big city that people tend to think of as a small town. Are you closer to the U.S. border through Chatham or through Windsor? Yeah, definitely kind of the Sarnia uh, way. So that's right. Sorry, Sarnia. Yeah. Chatham yeah, Port, into Sarnia. Yeah. Yeah. Port Huron. Um, I think like I could I think I could be across the border to Port Huron in 45, 50 minutes. Um, and then Windsor is a couple hours drive. Um, there's actually an awesome uh, artist 
um, and he's a graphic designer. He's kind of a Renaissance man um, uh, named uh, uh, James Kingsley here, and he designs these really great uh, shirts, among many other things he does. He has a, a local publication here that kind of keeps tabs on on what's interesting and new happening in London. But he designed, he, he has like the shirts, like that sort of famous um, stacked, uh, like Helvetica type. Um, and he's got these ones that say like halfway between Toronto and Detroit. So I, oh, just, nice. bought, <laughs> I just bought a couple for my wife and I, we've been saying that our whole lives. So it's like the thing that helps you situate yourself when you're in London, because there really isn't anything else around you. Um, everyone from surrounding really small towns always comes to London to, to eat, to shop, um, and kind of, you know, taking, taking some, uh, concerts, hockey, whatever. You considered yourself more of an artsy kid growing up, but there was one sport that you did that jumped out at me because I did it too growing up. How <laughs> did you find yourself into water polo? Okay. Well, I can't say I stayed long in the pool, but um, for a year or two, I played water polo when I was about 11 and 12. Um, and the way I, f I think it was actually a friend of the family, uh, their daughter played. And uh, yeah, and I, I think it was just a, you know, like often happens when you're 11 or 12 years old conversation between parents and, and uh, yeah, all of a sudden I was on the team. So I played at the university of Western Ontario, which was pretty, pretty cool. I remember very, very, very early morning Saturday drives uh, up to, uh, to Western walking through the underground tunnels, which my parents love to show me as, as uh, alumni. Uh, from Western. Uh, yeah, I knew I was getting close when I started to smell the overwhelming chlorine smell. Um, but yeah, only played for a couple of years when I was around that age. And when it came to the arts, it seems like you did everything. Uh, it was piano, you were in theater. Okay, so it sounds yeah. like you were a music theater kid. Can we say it that way? Is that the best way to sum it up? Like, is Becca uh, looking for a Tony? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think maybe in my earlier days, I probably was. Yeah, I uh, was definitely the uh, the kid in orchestra, the kid in the kid in drama was, uh, you know, um, really wanted to be the lead and was the lead often in, in a lot of plays kind of growing up. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's probably fair. I think that's fair. Did you do Royal Conservatory piano no. lessons? No, I didn't. No, I did private lessons for um, maybe probably five was years it, was it going through the royal conservatory grades no it wasn't it wasn't oh, that you avoided uh, those oh thank wasn't god that balls to the wall. i think my um my grandmother and my mother who both uh did the conservatory grades like i think they were um they were both like wonderful musicians vocalists and piano players and i could never i could never live up to it piano just wasn't my thing i i played mostly by ear I was really good at playing by ear, but like at a certain point that you kind of cap off, like you just, you can't get any further if you're not really, really solid on, on reading, reading music. So I kind of hit a wall with it. Why do you set your grandparents as your biggest influence? Oh, that's a good one. Um, they, um, these are my maternal grandparents. They were, we spent so much time with them. Like we really did. We were one of those families that had Sunday dinner. Um, every single Sunday. Uh, my parents grew up in uh, little tiny towns, uh, you know, about half an hour outside of London. Uh, my dad grew up in Mount Bridges and uh, and then went to high school uh, in Strathroy. My mom grew up in, in Strathroy. Um, I don't know, my, my grandparents were 
Um, well, first of all, my grandfather was a, a high school principal and a, a history teacher before that. Um, he was a, a cadet. He was in World War II. Um, he was a larger than life character. He was kind of a, an icon, if you will. Um, there's some pretty epic stories about how um, uh, he, <laughs> how, uh, how, um, he, he didn't take shit. Uh, he was, uh, there's, there's a story about some students one year thought it would be a hilarious prank to, um, uh, cover his chairs with, uh, his, his chair in the classroom with thumbtacks, uh, facing up and he pulled up the chair, saw them, sat down and taught the entire, uh, oh, damn. Hour and ten minute history class, sitting on probably 60, 70 thumbtacks. Um, he would not give the stu <laughs> these students the satisfaction of even a grimace. Um, he wore these big, heavy, uh, dark rim glasses, and uh, he got the nickname the Coon because he looked like a raccoon wearing them. Uh, very seventies, um, and he was just he he was an, an incredible person and human he you know he was uh, he wrote poetry and he baked biscuits and he made homemade soups but then he was also a huge sports fan and uh just tough as nails military guy uh you know the way he showed his affection is he'd walk by and he would take his knuckle and he'd, he'd wrap you on the head two or three times really hard and that meant i love you like he was <laughs> was not an emotional guy but a really just a just an interesting educator an interesting human being my grandmother was like i said a, she you know, sang in choirs and um you know uh, played the piano um they both loved to um they both loved to be by the lake. They both loved to travel. Um, they loved things like music and theater. And I, you know, I, I really got exposed and had the opportunity to take in um, some pretty world-class theater in Toronto and in Stratford at the um, uh, Stratford Festival, uh, you know, because of them. Um, they really felt like that was important and, and they could see that I, I was really, you know, developing a love for it. So they, they made sure I had a lot of opportunities. Uh, so I, I just, yeah, I just grew, grew up spending a lot of time with them and, and really loved the sensitivity and also maybe like the, the structure, the sensitivity and the structure that were represented by both of them. At Stratford, were you uh, taking in some Shakespeare? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I um, I acted in the seventh grade. I, I played Hermia in the production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And my grandparents, the next year, uh, the Stratford Festival was putting it on and they they took me. And yeah, it really blew my mind. Um, and then I've gone to the festival. I don't know, maybe you have missed a year or two here or there, but I've gone to the festival every year since. Is it going to rebound this year after the pandemic? Because I guess this is the first time that it's in full swing without any sort of restrictions. Yes, I, I think it is. I think for a couple of reasons, they have the new Tom Patterson Theater. It is a beautiful space. I haven't gone on a, uh, a tour yet, but I've swung by and sort of crept around the outside. Um, but also, I think they're doing some really amazing things with uh, programming in terms of um, making creative choices with traditional shows, but at the same time also bringing some really unexpected shows, like doing Little Shop of Horrors and Rocky Horror Picture Show and like these shows where everyone's there, you know, wearing feather boas and they've had one too many drinks and it's just like a riot of a time. I think 
they're bringing a lot of really interesting programming alongside, you know, the the traditional um, the traditional shows. Uh, my parents are going to see uh, King Lear um, with Paul Gross on Thursday, and that's one of the only Shakespearean plays I have not seen uh, on stage, and it was my grandfather's favorite. Um, so I can't wait to go take it in. King Lear was a comedy, right? If I remember correctly, because there it's, was, I throw that out there because in high school I got to, and stop me if you did OAC as well. And to anyone mm -hmm. listening, that's grade 13. Yep. But for some reason <laughs> it was too pretentious to call it grade 13 when we were in high school. And yep. I remember I got to OAC English and my English teacher, I forget what we were supposed to learn or what Shakespeare player was supposed to study, but she had said, you know, ever since the ninth grade, you've done nothing but dramas from Shakespeare. So you must think this guy's incredibly depressing. So she uh, she made us uh, she um she was the only teacher that swapped us into a comedy i'm pretty sure it was king lear for that reason only she's like no more she's like no more dramas oh i'm sure like many of the like many of them there there's like there's an element of of comedy like you always have that um that sort of balance i mean shakespeare's really good at that i think traditionally it's kind of seen more as a tragedy only because you know, it, this father who's completely, you know, sort of um, em, embroiled in, in this, um, you know, he has these three daughters and affection for the three of them. And um, and he sort of, uh, you know, it's all about him kind of preparing for old age and death and, and dividing up his his property and his his wares amongst amongst these three daughters and, and the relationship between the three of them. And I think eventually, if I'm not mistaken, I think he goes I think he goes kind of insane. Um, so it's about sort of this like fall and fall of this great man. Um, so maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe there's, maybe there's some comedy in that. I don't know. Well, if it ends better than Romeo and Juliet, then <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> a lighter tone. Most things do. <laughs> yeah. What was your first job ever? Well, my first, first job ever um, was a, paper route that I had delivering Sears catalogs in the third grade. A uh, friend and I were on our bikes and we were being chased by some grade six bullies and we pulled into a driveway pretending it was our house and uh, somehow wound up <laughs> talking to this neighbor who said, hey, do you kids, do you kids wanna, wanna talk about maybe having a, having a job? And I always think back to that moment because it's really the difference between uh, between my dad and <laughs> my friend's father. Uh, I guess my friend Melissa went home and told her parents and they said, ah, oh, no, you don't need a job. Uh, I went home and, and <laughs> told my dad, who is you know, very, very enterprising and, and, uh, and all about kind of, uh, you know, developing that sense of responsibility. And he was like, perfect. Yes, you should, you should definitely have a job. Um, so I remember going and getting my first bank account in the third grade and taking my little red wagon all over and delivering my Sears catalogs. Um, so that was technically my first job. Um, you throw in a little babysitting here and there as well. Um, uh, working my way through the neighborhood. Um, but I think my first real job um, was working for the London and Middlesex Housing Authority um, when I was, I think it was probably the summer I was 16 or 17, 17. Um, I worked leading, developing and leading uh, recreation and wellness programming for kids who were all residents of um, rent geared to in income housing. Um, so it's now called affordable housing, but at the time it was 
um, called rent geared to income housing. So uh, there are well, there were seven, I think, seven or eight of these communities throughout London. We're all managed by the Housing Authority, and this was really about giving um, kids in these communities an opportunity to attend what was essentially camp, like summer day camp, um, because their families certainly would not have been able to to send them to a, a camp or even get them into a YMCA or, or a sleepaway camp or anything like that. What kind of impact did that have on you? Because I'm sure you, you went to school with kids that didn't have the same social status as others. Maybe they were living below the poverty line, but when yeah. you're that young, you kind of don't see it. You, like it's, yep. you see, you notice certain things, but it just kind of goes over your head. But now you were what, like 17 years old. You've got the benefit yeah. of perspective a little bit more mature than you were. What kind yep. of impact did that have on you? Did you even reflect back on some of your friends or people that you knew at school 10 years prior going, oh my God, I think they would have benefited from this program or probably yeah. went through this program and we just had no clue at the time. Yeah. I, I mean, to answer the question, it had a profound effect on me. And I think it's, it's, um, I see uh, that opportunity and I see that um, what I, what I dealt with, what I encountered, um, what that job taught me, I see that sort of it reverberating throughout my entire career and adult life. Um, it, it's made me a more, um, passionate advocate and, uh, community minded volunteer. Um, it, it's why, uh, later on in my career, or, you know, few years into my career, I was, um, tied to the Children's Aid Foundation and that, um, that was really important to me. And that spark, kind of, uh, started a curiosity, um, when it comes to, you know, the foundation was is the support financial support arm for children's aid societies across the country. But I learned I learned a lot of perspective. Um, I learned to contextualize my my own privilege. Um, I learned that not everyone grew up the way I was fortunate enough to grow up. Um, and to be honest, like, you know, you're a team of three young people and you're embedded within the community. You know, the kids don't come to the high school gym. Like you're you're given um, a, t- a townhouse unit within the community and you are running the program out of um, out of out of that out of that uh, um, unit within the community. Um, you know, day in and day out and you're there 9 hours a day and so you're really embedded. Um, you're really embedded. You're really getting to know the families, the parents, the social dynamics. Um, yeah, it had a profound effect on me. Well, I study English and media information and technoculture at Western University. Like, why decide to study that and stay local at the same time? So I think I think there's sort of a whole bunch of different things that are kind of connected in. I I switched programs a couple of times. I took a general first year. I was doing a lot of English and social science. And I I really didn't know too much about MIT, which was very new at Western at the time. Like this was 1998. Um, You know, I didn't know too much about MIT. But as soon as I learned a little bit more about it, I thought, yeah, this really connects a lot of things for me. Um, I ended up switching programs between my second and third year I took a year off in, in the middle of university I just wanted to like I think I was one of those students who'd been so head down and and 
you know, gunning for my whole high school career and, and wanted to do the next thing. All of my girlfriends from um, high school went away and all of my guy friends stayed in London and went to Western. So my first year of university was me hanging out with a lot of guys in some pretty unsavory bars. Um, my first year was pretty interesting. I think I think honestly, if I look back, I think I was a, I think I was afraid to go away uh, to school. I think I'd come from like kind of a close knit family. My parents went to Western as well. My grandparents went to Western. Like it was a little bit of a family thing, although that pressure was never put on me. Um, I applied to Queens and Mac and and um, a couple of other school Waterloo, and got great scholarships to those schools. But I, you know, in the end, I just I, I think I felt more comfortable staying home. Of course, there were times where I really wished I'd gone away, and I also was really fortunate to meet a group of great girls and move out in my second year. And so I lived most of my time not at home uh, during school, <laughs> which I think helped. Um, but Western's a phenomenal school. And because I wasn't going away, like one of my friends went away for architecture, one went away for veterinary, like it, I, I was, you know, I wasn't going away for a specific program or a specific school. And so I knew I had a phenomenal educational institution on my doorstep and so that was part of it as well um, but as I learned more about MIT that what that's what sort of caused me to shift gears I ended up doubling up and doing all of the prereqs in my second year and going into the program in the same year so I almost had my entire second year was like really dominated by the MIT program and I think I saw it as a connection point to um, you know, all of the literature and English and reading and writing that I loved, um, you know, the social sciences stuff uh, that that I that I also took, but I saw it as a connection to like this media, pop culture, um, you know, techno emerging technology and innovation. Um, it was a really interesting offering at a time when I think a lot of programs weren't really focused in that way. Did you say that you took a little bit of time off in between as well? Was it your third year, you said? Yeah, I ended up taking what would have been my third year off. So you and just then, took it as a gap year. So yeah. when you mentioned that it sounded like you were going through a little bit of burnout at that point because you said that you were always <laughs> yeah. full speed ahead on everything. So what made you come to that conclusion? Like, were you concerned that you wouldn't go back to university? I'm sure your mm. parents might have been like, okay, you can take a year off, but you're going back, right? Right? Like conversations like that might have come up because – Someone had thrown research yeah. at me that had said that if a student takes a gap year between high school and their first year of university, the likelihood of them going to university or college after that drops by something like 60%. Yeah, you know, I ha I did have a lot of people um who said to me, "Oh my god, don't 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 take a year like you'll you'll never go back." To me, and I think anyone who knew me, like strangely enough, my parents weren't at all worried that I wouldn't go back. Like anyone who knew me and and I, you know, me knowing myself, I knew I was going back. But I also knew I couldn't without taking taking a beat. Yeah, I think there were just like it was it was sort of a perfect storm of like there was some, you know, personal life stuff going on. There was there was uh, total, you know, um, school burnout, managing change, managing becoming like living on my own for the first time, which I did for the first time in my second year, you know, the way a lot of people 
do in their first year. Like I didn't have that experience. So there was a whole bunch of different things that contributed to it. And I kind of hit a wall and I knew that I needed to take the time, but I, it, it was great. Actually, I lived with my roommates who were, you know, all, all, well, two of them that year, they were in the scholars electives program at Western, uh, you know, really intense, serious students. I was surrounded by, you know, all of my friends were still in school. I, I continued to live with my roommates and I picked up two jobs and was waitressing and working retail and, and just sort of like, I, I just had a year where I, where I breathed a little bit. Um, and then immediately went back the next year and I was so much more interested in school and I was so much more purposeful about the courses that I was taking, the professors that I was following, the things I got involved in. It was almost like I finally, like after that year, I had the experience that I, I think I thought I was going to have the first go around. After graduation, you re-enrolled though into Humber College's corporate communications and PR programs. So what brought you to that program and that discipline of communications? I knew um, at the time, one of my roommate's friends had had gone through the program. So I had the opportunity to kind of bend her ear and and, um, learn a little bit more about it. It was a natural connection, you know, coming out of a an English and media degree, like essentially, you know, um, what, you know, I, I kind of, I, I did think a lot about uh, journalism and, uh, you know, I think in the end, I just, I, I did a little bit more research about this program, um, you know, understood how highly regarded it was, uh, had the opportunity to talk to, to this uh, friend of a friend who had, you know, really great things to say about the mixture of theory and 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 practical that you got your hands on and it seemed really interesting to me um so yeah i think it was um it wasn't more complicated than that you mentioned you toyed with the idea of going into journalism i want to know what persuaded you otherwise did you look at it and go being righteous doesn't pay very well and i'm not knocking journal no i'm not knocking journalists at all but yeah the journalists that i see that really seem to be making money those are the ones that stumble upon or discover a really big story and then parlay that into a book deal and then they mm-hmm. kind of become a ted talk level celebrity after that where people want to pay for them to come back and speak yep. whereas it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of opportunity and as we record this just a couple of days ago buzzfeed let go of their entire news department yes. so yeah it's, i it's saw a, that like, did that have an impact? Like just looking at the economics of it? I don't, I don't know. I don't know that it was like, I wish I could say that I was that practical, um, you know, as a, as a 20, 20 year old or 21 year old. I don't know that I was, I think it was more about really trying to find where I fit. Um, I had gone to, you know, I was one of those, uh, I guess it would have been late eighties, early nineties, kind of preteens that had gone to the, um, the program at the local high school here in London, where they were really encouraging young girls and young women to be more career minded. So I had done interviews with the, you know, the anchor of uh, CFPL here in London, the local news station. And I had gotten a chance to, you know, dig into, um, you know, speaking to a magazine editor. And I think I had in my head as a young as a young person that I, this idea of being in media and being a journalist. And I think that I, MIT and, and just sort of other factors exposed me to like a different way to be in the bigger world of, of media, if you will. 
um, which is sort of what led me more into thinking about like communication strategy and corporate communications and public relations. So what was your first job in media? Um, my very first job was, uh, I was, thankfully, I was sort of ushered into it by virtue of um, my in, the internship program that was that was compulsory for the the postgrad that I took. So I worked in um, I worked in an agency. Uh, so really kind of cut, cut my teeth in um, a really small agency called uh, Holmes Creative Communications. Uh, a colleague of mine from the Humber program had already cultivated a relationship with them. They were um, very creative focused. They were in entertainment PR. And this colleague of mine, uh, her name is Amy Dory. She's gone on to now, now she runs her own company called ADPR. Uh, she's an, an amazing uh, professional in communications, but she was one of those uh, people in the program who was super passionate and had done her homework and she knew uh, HCC really well and was already volunteering and working with them. So uh, she kind of opened my eyes to the potential of this organization. So I ended up doing my internship there and working with them, staying on for a little bit um, and got exposure to some pretty amazing clients. Like day one, we were, we were working on um, you know, the uh, Songwriters Hall of Fame Gala and Canada's Walk of Fame and CTV and Soul Pepper Theatre Company and the Canadian National Exhibition and like some pretty exciting uh, client, you know, opportunities for for starting out in, in, in a PR agency. So it sounds like this agency, because it was smaller, you were far more hands-on at the entry level versus say bigger companies oh, yeah. will bring interns in and they'll 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 persuade you not to touch. They won't let you touch anything. <laughs> You're just there yeah, to no. get caught. <laughs> no, we got, we got shown where the buttons were. <laughs> the control that's room. Good. Yeah. Well, that's no, good because it, that's like something that students I find have a real conundrum with and yeah. it really deflates them. And the problem with college and university is we're going to teach you to be leaders of tomorrow. Great. I've graduated. I've got student debt or I had to empty my bank account to get through the program. And then yep. now I'm getting coffee for people. Totally. And then they realize, wait, it's going to take me a couple of years to get to just get to a level where I'm going to be able to have input in the room. So, yeah, it just sucks the life and uh, out of it and the ambition. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I think um, this was the opposite of that, to be honest. Uh, I, I think um, David and Catherine, who owned the agency, um, they they did something really smart. They got, you know, uh, you know, very uh, ambitious, goal oriented, bright students in the door and they made them a part of the team and we felt like a part of the team and we were given real responsibility like I wrote the press kit for the CNE that's a pretty big deal you said that you were you were just in your early 20s there like fresh out of school that's a really big deal the Canadian National Exhibition is a big deal to anyone who's not Canadian and listening to this right now and it's a big media machine too you know like you every uh, like Every um, news station uh, at the the time, you know, we were dealing a little bit more with traditional media, but digital media too. But, you know, every news station comes and does their morning wake ups and their evening live eyes from the CNE. You know, it's all of all of the area, you know, not just Toronto, but, you know, the GTA and beyond is really for those two weeks. That's what everyone wants to know about what's going on, what's happening today. And so we were like... And it's around, I mean, worked on lots of clients there. Like I worked on and got to see and do an incredible 
uh, amount. But for those couple of weeks, like, uh, you know, you're there 18, 19 hours a day. Like you're just, you're, you're meeting, you're ushering, you know, the, the breakfast television crew around in the morning. And then you're there for the live eyes till, you know, the last crew leaves at, you know, close to 1am. And yeah, it's, it, it's, I really, really got a lot of, uh, got a lot of mileage out of that, that first job. Years ago, I saw one segment from the CNE, and it was, I think it might have been breakfast television. It was one of the early morning shows. And they were talking about the different food at the food building. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, as you know, and people who don't know what the CNE is, there's an entire food building there, and it has got some of the most eclectic mixes of culinary items that you've ever seen anywhere. Uh, like, oh, right down yeah. to, They'll deep fry anything and serve it to you. And it was funny because you could tell certain people wanted the press for their booth or their restaurant. So they dragged themselves up for this at 630 in the morning. And you've got the host eating stuff that, I mean, you'd only eat at 630 oh. in the morning if you were just coming out of the bar and you were yeah, hungover. Exactly. And it's like, let's try this deep fried piece of cheese or this thing right here. And it's like, that is not, that is not breakfast food, but no. like those kind of segments. Yeah. And eating it like, you know, grease and brisket and cheese like dripping down their chin at seven yeah, like, legs. It's stuff, yeah the stuff that would give you heartburn like any time of day but it's not <laughs> what you want to wake up to yeah so what brought you to the children's aid foundation and take us through what your role there was like as the special events and volunteer coordinator part of the um post-grad that i took uh involved taking a course in the not-for-profit sector and in fundraising and during that uh, course, we also had an opportunity to do kind of a uh, an internship in miniature, and that involved going one day a week in and being paired up with an organization that you could go in and volunteer at and support um, one day a week. So I was actually I was really interested in this in this course. Uh, I think I always have had a little bit more of a a public affairs government affairs kind of bent to me. So I was really interested in this course and and developed a really good relationship with my professor. And um, he had a relationship with the foundation. And so he connected me in and I ended up uh, going, you know, uh, doing my my internship, if you will, there. Um, And so when I was coming out of uh, homes and looking for, uh, you know, more kind of uh, permanent role, Um, they had a position open and it was within their events, marketing and comms team. And yeah, so I, uh, you know, had, had already built a great relationship and had, had worked pretty hard for them. So, um, yeah, was able to, to come in and and start at CAF. Uh, I think I, I did so many different things. Again, this was, um, a pretty hardworking, small team. Um, and, I would say primarily my responsibilities were communications and events. Um, so, you know, with the communication side, it would be like newsletters and writing website copy and uh, writing sponsorship proposals, um, writing reports for donors um, and prospecting for potential donations. And then on the event side, it was everything soup to nuts. Like we were working on envisioning what those events would be. And I'm talking about like, top tier fundraisers for corporate Canada. So they had to be of a certain level. So whether it was a, you know, fancy schmancy golf tournament or a black tie gala, the Children's Aid Foundation is pretty famous for their teddy bear affair. Um, Sort of the, 
where all the who's who uh, would be um, every November in Toronto. It was a huge fundraiser that would raise millions of dollars that would help fund programming for the Foundation Children's Aid Societies. So my role was like, uh, you know, working on envisioning that, planning it, the full execution, the wrap up. And then, you know, within my little role, (laughs) my side hustle was managing all of the volunteers for the foundation. So um, all of the communication with them, um, the, you know, the building of a volunteer base and nurturing of the volunteer base. And then for events as well, like specifically, I would be the person who would bring together the volunteer team. Um, sometimes that would be three, 400 people. You know, if you're talking about a gala that that runs for 19 hours almost, um, uh, by the time you've set it all up and <laughs> torn it all down. Uh, and so I would have to, you know, prospect and find that team and secure them and train them and and lead them on the day. Um, so a lot of really good experience that I carried forward with me into um, board positions, but also just into into further work. Do you find that your time at the City of London's Housing Commission prepared you for some of the things you saw? Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely did. And I think what it also helped me do, I mean, working at the foundation you are if you don't keep in mind who you are raising money for it you can you could very easily become removed from that um because you're not in the cas like children's aid society offices right um so working at the foundation you're kind of a couple steps removed but because i had had that early experience where i had you know, had to pick up the phone and phone Children's Aid to report, you know, violence in the community that I was witnessing. Um, It, you know, it never really left my mind. Um, And one of my favorite events that I got to, uh, you know, help lead planning for um, was every December, we did uh, what they called then the holiday season celebration. And that was a holiday party for kids in care. Um, and, you know, you'd have a thousand kids like taking over the basement of the Metro Toronto Convention Center or the basement, uh, the you know, the bottom floor um, ballroom at the uh, Royal York. We'd have all these wonderful donors who would give us space to do these events. And like, then you would be so connected to it. Um, but I remember my executive director at the time uh, at the foundation, wonderful leader uh, named Sheila Johnson. I remember her bringing kids in care into the board meetings and her really um, her wanting to make sure that, you know, um, these executives who sat on the board, who were all amazing, wonderful professionals giving of their time, um, but also had the opportunity to hear kids in care speak about their lives. What brought you to Conan Wolf and what did your role as an account executive for corporate and public affairs entail? So uh, I actually found out that Conan Wolf was looking for uh, an account executive through uh, a woman who'd gone to Conan Wolf and she had been uh, an intern for me at the foundation. So uh, really, you know, nice uh, moment uh, of kind of working, <laughs> working your network. Um, Lynn had told me about uh, an open role within the public affairs and corporate team. Um, and so that was initially how I found out about it. I always think about my time at Conan Wolf in two parts. 
Um, I think I was there just over three years, but the first year and a half, I came into this really busy team working on Nissan and Infinity. Um, it was a team that kind of ran like a, well, pretty well-oiled machine, uh, had, you know, great people on the team. It was a long-standing client of, of Kona Wolf. Um, and so that was very corporate, right? So it was, it was, um, messaging strategy. It was some crisis comms. It was a lot of media relations, um, and, uh, a lot of, um, vehicle launches. I'd never worked in automotive before. And so you get pretty intimately <laughs> familiar with, uh, the spec sheets and the, uh, you know, um, you know, just, just the details of, of the vehicles. Um, we worked on a lot of launches for new cars, um, worked on, uh, I managed the, the press fleet. So there was, I don't know, 150 cars that sat in lots and eight cities across Canada. And I knew where every single one of them was and with what journalist at every single moment of the day and week. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty interesting role. I also got seconded. So I, I worked Tuesdays and Wednesdays out of Nissan's office and um, kind of going inside like that is something that I think started there for me, but I have done several times in my career and that's kind of a thread uh, running through. So um really got to see the inner workings of the organization, work more closely with the client uh, communications uh, and public relations and internal communications leads, uh, work more closely with the marketing team and contextualize communications and PR as you know a, a function within the larger kind of marketing machine on the client side. So it was a really valuable experience. Was that uh, the head office near the airport? Yep, that's it. I always look at my where I sat. I can see my window every time I drive by. Okay, so I'm a car guy. Yeah. Which 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 Nissan did you enjoy driving the most? Because I'm sure you had your right Ooh. foot on the throttle of all of those models when you were working there. Oh yeah, I mean that was such a huge perk, right? We got to we got to um, rent them out and drive them, um, and also on the you know we went we did a lot of traveling with a lot of uh, like Canadian and American media to launch the cars. Oh, so um, the GTR came back while I was working on it. Um, Very good choice. So got to, yeah, got to launch the the GTR. Um, and it was, it was amazing too, because you'd get to go, you'd get to go to like Canadian car of the year um, where, you know, get to drive all the vehicles and, and some of these journalists who have like, who've been through driver training in France and stuff like you know, on an airport strip, uh, letting it rip in a GTR is pretty fun. Um, I would also say this, this model isn't around. It was an infinity model. Um, they used to have an EX and an FX and I'm familiar was, with both. Like, yep. Yeah. Right. And I love those. I love the drive on them. I mean, Infinities are, you know, they've always been lovely cars, but I loved the drive on both of those vehicles and they were super fun to drive. We did a couple, um, when we launched the FX in the US, we did a trip um, to San Diego and our drive route was all around like La Jolla and all these beautiful like kind of oceanside highways. Um, and so that was really, really fun. You also worked on the TransCanada pipelines when you were there. <laughs> Take us oh, through yeah. that client because pipelines, they are controversial. Oh yeah. And I mean, that was one of the most, um, contentious uh, situations I think I have ever worked on. Um, and in fact, that was really my last client in uh, traditional P 
PR in a in, tr in a traditional PR and public affairs like agency setting. Um, so that was the second half of my time at Conan Wolf. Um, I was really fortunate to have been brought in by um, a couple of great leaders at CNW at the time. Uh, one of them was the managing partner Peter Block, and you know I, I joined as maybe the the second or third person on the account. We were brought in to provide them strategic counsel. Um, this was McGinty government days where they were trying to, um, you know, they were trying to land uh, uh, a natural gas power plant. In, oh, the one in Etobicoke. Um, I know. Oakville. Or is Oakville. Okay. Because there's the gas plant in, in, I think it was Oakville, Mississauga, the border there. But, yeah. but go on. Yeah. No, that's what, uh, that's one of the things they were pushing for. That was controversial. Yes. It, it was extremely controversial, contentious. Um, and so this was true consulting. It was an extremely dynamic situation. And again, I worked from TC's offices every afternoon. So I was in at Kona Wolf in the morning and I would uh, race down to <laughs> TransCanada and I'd work out of their office alongside the communications folks, the, um, the engineers, uh, the environmental consultants, the GR uh, team and, and government relations consultants. Um, in the afternoon and the, it was such a dynamic situation like if, if for for anyone listening who is not aware um this you know this <laughs> power plant had to pass so many different public consultation environmental consultation checkpoints and there was some really um let's just say motivated uh, citizens of Oakville who were extremely uh, well-funded and well-connected. Um, and, you know, this was about balancing what needed to be done to make sure that the project went ahead at the same time as keeping tabs on the resistance movement, uh, you know, nimbyism, if you will, um, that was rising around this. Um, and I, I'm talking like, like this was, it was pretty intense. There was a black tie gala at one point, Aaron Brockovich was flown in. Like, you know, this was, wow. you know, it, it was, uh, it was very, <laughs> it was very dynamic. It was, uh, it was one of the, honestly, it was, it was fun. Like it, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for punishment on stuff like that. It was a really interesting, fascinating, um, rife with challenge and, um, you know, uh, like it was just a really juicy project <laughs> to work on. Would you say that that client really helped sharpen and hone your skills? Because when you're speaking about something like gas pipelines, especially nowadays, I know that there's a lot of environmental consultations that are undertaken to make sure everything is as safe and as, as environmentally friendly as possible. But I find that information that you obviously in your capacity would want to get out to the media and the public doesn't make its way there. So this is really interesting because this also hit at a time where like it was like, you know, the burgeoning social media, uh, um, you know, uh, environment was starting to impact. Right. You'd have like the mayor of Oakville uh, tweeting. This is like a couple oh, of years or two after <laughs> af after, you know, Twitter became a popular communication tool for something like this. Right. And so one of the things that I did was. Um, you know, this group was mobilized on, uh, you know, of course, every social platform of which there were only a couple at the time. But oh, no, this I is one of those stories where you're like, you come for the post, but you stay for the comments, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I built a social media dashboard, you know, at the time, like this was not something that was that was commonly 
done uh, at this time, but <clears throat> had to build build a sentiment and volume kind of tracking uh, dashboard to to see what the conversation was like and to, and you know it was happening everything was happening so quickly that um, I think that was also powerful insight that that I, you know I was able to surface um, being maybe a little more of a digital native than some of the um, you know the engineers that I that I was working with um, you know it just wasn't their world uh, day to day so um, it was oh yeah I mean it was. It was fascinating. It was changing hourly, um, and it was yeah, it was extremely, extremely contentious. I mean, it was also an opportunity to think about um, content marketing in a in a way that was you know not not being done right because as you said, there's there's so much information that you want to get out to the public, um, and without seeming like big bad industry, um, and and to sort of balance the scales. Um, you know, there was a lot of kind of emotional. Um, I don't want to call it like propaganda, but there's, there's a lot of like emotional, uh, you know, uh, plays, um, being made, um, uh, on all sides at that time. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was really, it was a fascinating project to think strategically about, uh, and, and about how to cultivate influence in a really, um, a really messy and, uh, you know, space that where tensions were mounting. Uh, it was, it was definitely a really juicy communications challenge. You mention politicians getting on social media for the very first time, and chances are they started without any training wheels. There's a really funny story I got to share with you about this. Have you ever yeah. heard of a politician? He's got an unfortunate name. His name is Ed Balls. Oh, he's, why is this familiar to me? He's a British politician uh, for the Labour Party, and uh, yep. I'm pretty sure he was in cabinet under uh, Gordon Brown and possibly even Tony Blair as well yep. uh, in the mid-2000s. And apparently when he got on Twitter, he, I don't know if it was his first tweet or whatever, but he confused the tweet function with the search function and he wanted to search for his, he was basically out there to search for tweets on him. And he went to the tweet function and typed Ed Balls and hit tweet and then went away for a bit. And so I, it's not a big deal anymore, but the internet yeah. captured that day as Ed Balls day because, and it's kind of like a symbol for politicians who clearly do not have PR people or communications people managing their social media yep. and have no desire to learn. Oh How yeah, to use and, social and you, media. Oh my God, and and we still see it today. Like, I mean, what was the the case of the one of the oh, the governor or something, and down like in in one of the Carolinas was liking the Instagram posts of you know a whole bunch of folks in the LGBTQ community and and tra uh, you know trans uh, women and, and and at the same time coming in, in you know uh in his official capacity sort of condemning the community at the same time like just i mean you see these kinds of gaffes all the time where yeah uh god it gives me it gives me kind of uh it's giving me flashback <laughs> nightmares i'm starting oh to sweat it's yeah. all good uh sequentia and veronics yeah what attracted you to the company did you find the role as the client services and development manager or uh did the role find you um i uh, learned about this organization through a former colleague at CNW um, at Kona Wolf, who who went there and was loving it. And so I, when an opportunity came up um, as Sequentia was growing, uh, I threw my hat in the ring and uh, yeah, and and ended up moving over there. It was partly owned by the Enronics Group, and it was it was a really interesting. Um, it, it was 
a, definitely a startup. It was a startup environment. It was, uh, it was, I think, kind of similar to what we now see pretty often. We see agencies and banks doing it, like, it, you know, creating these kind of innovation hubs or these little startup labs. Um, this was, uh, you know, a, a business owner, though, um, Jennifer Evans. She started uh, Sequentia and it had uh, taken a bunch of different kind of twists and turns. Uh, when I was there, I worked in client service and, you know, wore many, many, many hats, uh, but worked with some really incredible, incredibly talented uh, people, um, many of whom, you know, I still keep in touch with today. We had a really good thing going. Um, but the Sequentia was all about community building. It had a proprietary methodology and it was also um a lot about technology content tracking um, and content marketing. And I think it really set a foundation for me um, of working in a different kind of environment in a very digitally driven environment. Um, and, uh, and it was a really, like a really interesting, interesting place to work. It was fast. Um, it was, it was sometimes it was messy, but other times it was absolutely brilliant and uh, have a lot of respect for the folks that I worked with there. I've always summed up startups this way because I've had people reach out to me because I, I have some startup experience, not as a founder, but just as an employee. And I've said yeah. to them, I go, if you want to be able to undertake responsibilities that are above your pay grade, that are above what you're currently doing right now, go the startup route. But at the same yep. time, as you have to reach up, you also have to reach down because there isn't that support group to do some of the more mundane jobs that support oh, yeah. what you do. So you have to do that. Like I always say to sales reps, for example, you know, you get a chance to lead. You get a, a chance yes. to be much more hands-on with the sales collateral when you're at a startup. But at the same time, if you're booking a lunch and learn with an agency, you got to whip out your credit card. You still can <laughs> expense it, obviously, but you're the one that's going to have to coordinate the food yeah. getting to the agency. You don't have some sort of uh, media assistant doing that for you. And that turns some people on and that turns some yeah. people off completely from that environment. So I, I, it sounds like you were more of the former rather than the latter. You enjoyed your time there. Yeah, yeah, I did. And to be honest, I, I'm so glad that I came to a more traditional or maybe more equipped environment much, much later in my career. Like, I'm so glad because I, I didn't know any different. I was I was like, yeah, of course, I, of course, I'll order that lunch. But at the same time, I'm also going to provide and, and do up the, you know, the senior communication strategy, or I'm going to prep that, uh, you know, the, the chair of the board of directors for a, a meeting with a sponsor. But yeah, I'm also going to go and, uh, you know, down to the event and, and tape the cables on the floor down at the convention set. Like, you know, uh, I didn't know any different. I did everything. I, I, <laughs> I project managed and client managed at the same time. Uh, you know, it, it made me, um, it made me so much more, um, effective and fast and decisive, but it also made me so much more sensitive to all of the different talents and specialties that, that people have when, when, you know, when they do those jobs and they do, they do them so well, and that is their art and that is their science. So it, I think it made me really versatile and humble, uh, but also, you know, full, full respect when I, when I finally kind of went into an environment where all of these disciplines got to live their full lives and got to kind of come together in harmony and, and, and make great things together. So there, there's, you know, there's always two ways to look at it, but I've always been so glad that I, that I really had to wear all the hats. And I think it just, it, it just makes you so 
relentless and so effective. You also spent some time at Twist Image, yeah, a very popular Canadian media and communications and creative company that was acquired a couple of years back. So what did your role as digital account director entail there? I was the second person hired in to help run the newly acquired Walmart Canada business. So I had a, you know, a brilliant uh, vice president at Sequentia who was the first hire. And <laughs> she kind of looked around when, you know, when she got there and, and knew that we worked really, really well together. I was on the hunt for a new opportunity after three years three, three and a half at Sequentia. And um, so, you know, came, ended up coming over to, to work with her uh, and ultimately uh, then was promoted into the uh, account director role to oversee the Walmart Canada business. So, um, uh, you know, it was really juicy for me to come and focus as I had on Nissan, as I had on TransCanada, um, to come and, and refocus after working on so many different clients simultaneously at Sequentia, it was really juicy to come and like live and breathe one big, fast, uh, aggressive uh, client like Walmart. Um, so uh, they were in build mode and I love build mode. I'm a builder <laughs> and they were in build mode. They, I think uh, twist image. Um, I think that's also where I got to sort of, I got to learn you know, a, a sort of they're a digital age. They were a digital agency, but also had you know, the, as you said, creative strategy. Like it was a real agency, agency. And I think that was my that was almost my first um, uh, agency on that side of the coin, uh, not a public relations agency or a startup. Um, and it was it was a great place. It was um, you know. There was so much magic there in the way that the team and people connected. Um, but yeah, I came in to, to work on Walmart and, and you know, uh, they're Walmart, right? So, you know, Twist acquires them and within the first four months, they want to do 18 months worth of work and they're not kidding. Like, oh, do it yesterday do it yesterday. So it was, um, it was so fast moving. And also like, I don't, I, I could be wrong about this, but I'm, I, I don't think I am. I don't think twist had at that time a retail client. Certainly there is no retail client like Walmart. So, um, so it was also a little bit about the agency really, uh, learning what Walmart meant by fast. <laughs> which and you can imagine what that was. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, you summed it up the best, 18 months worth of work in four and start yesterday. Yep. Yeah, exactly. But during your tenure there, Twist Image, we already teased it, was acquired and became part of the Miriam family. How yeah. did your role change? Like, how did the company change once that acquisition uh, occurred? Yeah, so um, I, I think all told, I was at Twist three years. And the acquisition came, uh, you know, right, it started to unfold right before um, my three-year mark. Um, so my role, my role didn't change. Uh, I was very focused on, you know, as I had been the entire time, uh, leading and um, evolving 
and sometimes stabilizing the the Walmart business. It was it was all consuming. My role didn't change, but I think um, I was there. Uh, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five months following the acquisition and following you know the the announcement when things really did start to roll out uh, that. WPP had acquired Twist and that, you know, there was this new global company and new global brand called Miram. Um, and so it was a lot of learning. There was a lot of change. There was change management going on, which was really interesting uh, to see unfold. There was there were doors opening. There were new client opportunities. There were, you know, regions that were forming and changing. Um, and yeah, so it it was definitely on the beginning of that evolution journey. Uh, in my last handful of months there. And I think you are one of three Twist Image alumni to participate. Huh. Yeah, no, we had Mitch Joel on. He was in the first mm-hmm. 10 episodes. Yeah. And then Sarah Thompson was on right. you know, 10 episodes ago, fall of 2022, yep. I believe. And then yeah. we got yourself. Yeah. So Twist Image and Miriam People keep finding their way on the Media <laughs> People podcast. <laughs> They do. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like uh, I'm okay. I'm 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 okay to be considered uh, amongst that company. A uh, ton of ton of respect for Mitch and ton of ton of respect for Sarah as well. Um, yeah, it was. There were so many, and I think Sarah touched on it uh, when you were when you were speaking with her. There were so many wonderful, uh, like-minded, talented, fierce, ambitious people um, that that you know, were part of that organization. And it was like really exciting to work with them on challenging new things. Um, I was like, I've been forever glad that I went uh, to that organization and have still, you know, still keep in touch with um, people uh, to this day. Uh, There was definitely a bond that was made there. You moved on to Real Interactive and it seemed like you had a dual role there. You were a digital account director and then you were also a group account director. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, went to work with and for uh, Robin Whalen, who, um, you know, we talk about uh, like absolute, uh, you know, titans in the industry. Uh, she is one of them. I had I knew Robin only by reputation um, and I was looking for something new. I was looking for um an agency environment that would allow me to kind of contextualize digital within a bigger picture. Um, so something that was maybe a little bit more integrated. Um, and yeah, and I knew, I knew Robin, uh, through several people, but by reputation only. And we met for breakfast, uh, and had a wonderful conversation. And I, uh, you know, I respected her going into that conversation, but I liked her so much coming out of that conversation. So, uh, you know, at that point in my career, I had already worked for some great leaders, but I was really starting to pick my, um, pick my environments and pick my leaders, uh, and, and, you know, make a move only when, um, only when I was sure about both. Um, so yeah, I was, uh, went in as a director, became GAD, um, and, uh, sat on the leadership team had an opportunity to kind of tackle not just some really great client wins and growth and and really cultivate and develop businesses um, and uh, and new client wins, but also um, start to tackle some kind of structural stuff. You know, I I like to think of myself as equally strategic and uh, 
operational. And I think there were some, you know, in a, in a big busy agency that uh, had had, you know, some traditional shopper marketing routes also had an entire division that was all about experiential as we were starting to bring together digital and experiential, there was a lot to be done. And I was really curious and interested in like the integration of all of those things from like a productization standpoint, from a, from a positioning standpoint. Um, So it was, kind of juicy to tackle some of that stuff. So you found it attractive then to kind of get out of the trenches and do more of more of the technical things, because I find that as people climb the ladder and they're less of a, just to use a sports analogy, they're less of a player and more of a coach, especially on the sales side of the business, which I'm on where, Mm -hmm. you know, people like leading sales, but they want to be in there for the pitches. They want to be part of the hunt. They want to be part of the close. But when you get to sales manager and sales director, you have to be high-fiving and supporting your people who are going to be doing that and putting their names on the contract and not yours. So as you started to climb the ladder and your responsibilities started to change and become, like you said, a lot more structural, that wasn't an issue for you? You were attracted to those duties? Yeah, because I think to a certain extent, I mean, I think you can always have moments where you can you can get in your own and other people's way if you don't know when to to just to just, you know, step aside. But I think, I think what I have always found really interesting is when I can see that there's an opportunity to bring together the, you know, the kind of the big picture, why are we doing this? What, what, what are we, you know, what are we trying to do? Like all of those sort of strategic mission-based things. And and hooking them on to organizational change and change management initiatives and culture stuff like you can't you cannot accomplish the first without changing or impacting or adjusting the second because if you have a like otherwise you're just repeating your same goals over and over and no one is ever going to say that that's what they're out to do so you've always got a more ambitious goal you've always got a new you know a new business target which exceeds what you what you achieved last quarter or last year so if you're going to if you're actually going to be able to do those things then you have to look at the organization's functions and operations and and and, and adjust like i'm i am <laughs> uh, my wife is a creature of habit and i am the opposite i am i'm not in any way um, you know, I don't avoid change. I relish it. I love it. Um, If you're into astrology, you would say I'm a true Sagittarius. Um, But I I just, I love, I love change. I love, I love toying with things. I like breaking things and rebuilding them. And so I think I've always looked for opportunities where, you know, I can, I can work on that big picture mission, but I can also make those recommendations, understand the mechanics of like, what has to change so that they actually get done? Otherwise, they're words on a page. Okay, so bringing everything full circle, what brought you to Wonderman Thompson? I like to say I came in through the Wonderman door. So I first went to Wonderman. Um, at Real, I had built um, the GlaxoSmithKline, as it was then called. It's now uh, new organization, um, Halion, uh, for consumer health. But it was GSK Consumer Health. Uh, was one of Real's clients, and I had built it um, from. It, it wasn't, you know, a digital client within the organization. It worked with other sectors, other divisions within 
uh, Six Degrees Real Interactive, but um, I made it a digital client and uh, grew it uh, over uh, two years um, from, you know, I think it was, I don't know, I think there was one project to uh, two, three million dollar client and developed a really good relationship with the head of marketing, um, a woman by the name of Bibita Batal. Um, and Wonderman, you know, was going through the process of um, bringing GSK Consumer Healthcare in globally. They had just won the global global digital AOR. And Bibita was very interested in having me come over and join the Wonderman team and, you know, to, to build uh, the, you know, work with her um, to, you know, work with her, her team of marketers to build digital capability, but also build the infrastructure and build the team and, and build the, the ways of working um, for Wonderman. So as soon as I met the then president of Wonderman, Michael Sergio, I was like, okay, so yes, <laughs> I, I'm going to go and I'm going to have this amazing leader in Michael and I'm going to have this wonderful supportive client who I have history with in Bebita. And it was, yeah, a really great couple of years. So I, I kind of came in through the Wonderman door um, and about two to three years after uh, working on that business, building that team, um, you know, it was, you know, this this integration, um, this global merger was announced between Miram. Wonderman Thompson and, and Jay, uh, sorry, Wonderman and Jay Walter Thompson. Um, so yeah, it was almost in my six to seven years with them. I had, again, one of those part one, part two moments where, uh, my, my last three years was, was under the Wonderman Thompson banner. And so went through that whole, you know, global, uh, merger and, and, and really kind of felt and saw and was part of how it played out locally. You mentioned early on in our chat that you had left the company, but they talked you to coming back in three days later to work on a very specific <laughs> to work on a very specific project. But then, yeah. once that project was completed, you departed to take some time for yourself. So, what uh, motivated you to take that time for yourself? What was going on? Because just in speaking with you, is it safe to say that you probably had similar feelings or emotions as you did at the tail end of your second year of university when you said, "You know what? I'm just going to hit a hard pause." on uh on the things that are keeping me busy in life yeah definitely safe to say that but i think having gone through the uh the merger and we all like anyone who was who was you know at wonderman thompson during that time we were really fortunate we had a very uh transparent open easy to talk to leader uh jeff dack came in and, you know, that's that's a pretty wild task to be handed that remit uh, to bring all those cultures and companies together. Um, I'm so proud of the work that I did when I was there and I had wonderful partnerships um, in my uh, strategy and, and creative uh, and tech partners, um, Kevin Flynn and Cass Zawodowski and, and uh, Tim Bowett and, and just like wonderful um uh, you know, uh, supportive, you know, kind of step family, right? Because it was like this big integrated family that had to come together. So it was such a like interesting process to go through the merger, really juicy, big client assignments. I, you know, um, I ended up sort of almost inheriting as, as a vice president, all of legacy Wonderman and a couple of Thompson clients that, that kind of came my way in, in this sort of reorg. And so, 
a hefty, you know, a, a hefty role. Um, and at the same time also took on the leadership of the Microsoft um, business, which was a really unique kind of embedded model um, where, you know, Wonderman Thompson was responsible for helping Microsoft, Microsoft staff and, and support their, uh, their organization through, you know, data analytics folks and integrated marketers and social strategists. So I had another, aside from my business unit of 40 or 50 people, I had another 27 people um, within that uh, group as well. So I, I know I, I took on a lot. I love taking on a lot and I love like opportunities to build. But as I started to kind of hit that place where you, where you think of what do you, what do you, what do I want to do next? Um, what do I want that to feel like? What do I want it to give me? What do I want to be able to take away from it? And I started really asking myself a lot of questions and I was being recruited and interviewing for some great positions and, and actually took myself out of the running for a couple of SV, SVP roles purely based on, I'm not entirely sure that's what I want next. And I started working with an executive coach and spent, I would say six, eight months really contending with um, what it was that I wanted to do. And I didn't want to make a next move just to make a next move. Um, and I actually had some really interesting, like lovely, candid, open conversations with Jeff about this too. And, um, you know, he was, a, he was a supportive leader in that, in that respect and, and really kind of, you know, I think every professional gets to a point where, you know, you've got to ask yourself some hard questions. Um, yeah, so all in all, it led me to the decision to, um, to resign from the VP role at WT and to take a bit of a breather and to just sort of give myself some space to ask some questions and, you know, take a course and do some learning and just sort of explore um, what was out there. You know, I, I booked myself, you know, like classic, like I booked myself some informational interviews, you know, I kind of embraced that idea of almost like being a being a young professional again. And, and I think sometimes we forget to do that uh, as we move on in our career. So I just started talking to people. I was talking to people in change management. I was talking to people in, you know, other agency leadership roles. Um, you know, I was talking to people in, in strategy roles. It was, it was just like kind of a nice, a nice time to just get the juices flowing again. And, uh, and I'm really, it took me a, as someone who likes to go to the next thing and, you know, it took me, like, it took me a lot of convincing myself that it was okay to take that, to take that like pause. So um, yeah. And then, and to be asked back was a huge compliment and it was, it was, it, it was sort of it worked for everyone around the table uh, at that time. So, so, you know, fast forward 11 months and just sort of wrapping up uh, this, this contract with WT. So it was, it was great to, to stay in that capacity. And so now, now I'm at the point where I'm, I'm excited to explore, uh, you know, new opportunities. Um, but yeah, it was definitely the right move to, to just give myself a little bit of that space. And part of those new opportunities have been independent consulting. Yes. Take us, take us through what that's like, everything from how do you land that consulting gig? What are the typical problems they're bringing you in to solve? And how do you, as kind of a one-woman show, like in, kind of like a freelancer, if you almost want to call it that, how do you come into those organizations and say, okay, I'm going to fix these problems without any sort of resistance from the people on the inside already? So, I mean, you've asked a few great questions. Um, 
and and again like i'm at i'm at the beginning of this journey but i think um you know what what is important to me is right now to look at opportunities that are becoming of where i i want to go and and where i want to be and what i do best um i'm not i'm not looking to like you know necessarily to like jump in and 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 kind of um you know jump into to an account role and start running around and i i think it's um you're always you're always going to you know you're always going to do that and you're always going to manage clients and you're always going to have um you know working amongst teams and don't get me wrong like I, I i love that too but i think um you have to be really clear about what it is you do best you have to be really clear um what your offering is, what you uniquely can bring to the table. And then I think for me, I've always been someone, you know, earlier I was talking about that kind of through line of like being embedded, right? Being embedded in these spaces, whether it was at Nissan or TC or or really embedding myself with the Walmart business or the GSK business. Um, I've always really thrived on context. And so I know that I can't come into any situation and start providing a, 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 you know, recommendations or a point of view without first building some context. So it takes a willing partner on the other side. Anyone who's going to hire me to come in has got to, you know, believe that, you know, believe in, in that process of building that context. Otherwise, what are we there doing? Um, and I think I'm so, um, I'm really grateful for, uh, my network because having conversations, as I said, I'm at the beginning of this, this journey and having conversations with, um, with people in the industry, looking at all different types of, um, uh, you know, targets, if you will, like whether it's, you know, big network agencies or smaller businesses. Um, you know, I think having conversations with, with people who can really articulate like, okay, what, what are you up against? What are you suffering from? What do you need? What do you imagine you need? What do you think you need? Um, And let's just have a conversation about how I might be able to, um, you know, kind of adapt or morph into that, into that solution. Um, And I think I have a very wide (laughs) uh, background um, I think in one of Mitch Joel's books, I think it was Control Alt Delete. He talked. He talks about like the zigzag, and I'm a zigzagger. Um, I've zigzagged through a, a bunch of different industries, and I, you know, I think that's something now that is making those conversations more fruitful because, um, hopefully, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, anyone who's going to hire me is going to be able to see that I can kind of uh, support in a, in a variety of different ways. Um, through marketing, communications, um, public, private sector. And what does the interview process look like, or just the job search process look like for someone going for a managing director or an SVP role? Because there are very few of those roles in an organization. And at the same time, you don't see a lot of postings for them. It, It almost tends to be, and it tells you a lot about the organization, but in my experience, it tends to be, um, one of two extremes. You can have the heavy administrative um, multi-step, you know, nine interview, the, you know, the the panel or the, you know, we want you to meet with our, our head of ops, our head of strategy, our head of creative, our head of, you know, uh, 
like you can have that um, after you've already spent a couple of hours talking to what would be like the, you know, the um, uh, either North American or Canadian uh, agency lead. Um, you can have that multi-step. And I, and I think I've seen in my experience, I think that's been common um, because I think there's so many more <laughs> like checks and balances. And I think in a way, most of those conversations though have not been about ticking boxes. They've been about like, like actually having a conversation. Like it's not, you know, come in and tell us 26 things. It's like most of those people are just there to, to, you know, they know that you've met the requirements by that point. So they want to know, can they work with you? So I've actually found those conversations to be really pleasant. Conversely, you can have someone come in and say to you, and I've had this too. And I've had this even for, a consulting opportunity that I'm, I'm speaking with someone about where, you know, I've been recommended by a couple of people. So like, I came in uh, to talk to uh, one of, you know, uh, one of the big uh, agencies uh, here. And, and um, you know, he, he said to me, don't, don't tell me, don't tell me what you're, you know, don't give me your resume. I've already, you know, I, I, I know about you through this person and this person and, and I know you're not nuts. And I like, you know, I, I <laughs> like kind of, kind of like, don't tell me your resume. I know I've checked into you. I've done my homework. Like he said to me, I wouldn't be talking to you if I didn't already think you were great because I've heard, you know, so it, it, it like lets you start the conversation in a different place. Um, and you know that's refreshing too uh so yeah i think to me i've seen like both extremes becca this has been a fantastic chat thank you so much for your time are you ready for rapid fire questions yeah lay them on me okay i asked this question to mitch joel even though i didn't do rapid fire questions in the beginning and his response was oh you're gonna make me pick my favorite child and i don't think if <laughs> it was going back well and i don't think he actually picked anything and we skipped over it but for you the campaign you were most proud of Okay, so this is where, so I, I I depart a little from my from my esteemed colleagues in the advertising and communications space. I think I I don't have one campaign that I that I think of as as like the moment or you know something that makes me weepy. I have extreme like loyalty to and respect for the talented you know, strategy, creative technology, uh, you know, um, leaders in my, in my industry and in my most recent positions that I've worked with. I think I I've been so fortunate to work with some really incredibly talented people, but I just, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is about me. I don't, I don't think in campaigns. I think about like moments, like there are things that I wish a client bought, um, something that was on the cutting room floor that, uh, you know, I see as a moment that uh, I, I feel like, oh, I'm, we're never going to get that moment back. You know, I think about moments um, of, you know, collaboration or partnership or when something went totally, uh, you know, totally beautifully when we think when we thought maybe it wouldn't like those are the things that I kind of return to. And I sort of I, I, I think about in my in my personal uh, resume in this business, I, I guess I just kind of think less about campaigns. I don't know if that that makes me a a bad kid in advertising, but that's just not how I think. Okay, very diplomatic. You can tell that you defended oil pipelines at one point <laughs> in your career. <laughs> okay. And, and I will showing. say, 
I've had two out of okay. So I've had three twist image people on this podcast, and yeah. two out of the three refused to answer that question or sidestepped it altogether. So Sarah Thompson is the <laughs> only one who hits the only alumnus from uh, Twist Image that answered that question. So moving on to oh, the next okay. one, your favorite movie. Okay, well, I have a bit of a soft spot for old like black and white movies, like used to watch like Saturday Turner Night classic movies. movies. Oh yeah. Like I was, I was the kid who, and this is again with the, with the grandparents I talked about earlier, used to watch like, um, Saturday night at the movies with Aoi Oost. And I, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for, yeah, like your sort of screwball comedies and stuff like that. I would say, um, the Philadelphia story, which is like, just, I mean, it's, it's, it's just such a like energetic and hilarious, fun movie. If you haven't seen it. Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, and Katherine Hepburn. Like, it's just, but you almost don't even feel like you're watching a movie. You're just watching these three epic stars move around the screen, and you can't take your eyes off of them, and they're they're all so amazing. Um, I would say that, or maybe Goodfellas. My wife and I were talking about classic films. She's got a film degree, and she's we're both big film buffs, and we were talking about that era of cinema. And it's funny, oh, something so good. something that we something that won't be replicated ever again is the fact that they built their sets like they didn't yeah. go out onto the street level. And I mean, maybe if they had to film in the desert, sure, something like that. But they yeah, you didn't go to a grocery store to film. You built a grocery store set. You built a facade. You built the inside on a sound yep. studio or soundstage somewhere else. And like even we were watching, I was OK, not we. I was watching the old Batman 66 TV show and I'm just like, man, uh-huh. everything was built everything yeah. you're never going to see that again it's either on location or green screen yeah the I talent think that's a lost too. art yeah the talent when you think about like all of the people who whose life you know their life work their life's work were building and painting and and like it yeah it just it yeah it's it's amazing um do you remember that that um anti-privacy psa amc used to run before every film like you would have yes. a you'd have a voiceover just to give it to the audience uh, to people listening is that you would have this voiceover and you'd have this like gentleman talking about all the films he worked on and you're just like jesus is this robert de niro like he's talking about it. and then he's yeah. and then he starts to go into the fact that he's a set designer and then he starts to talk about how because of piracy it's eating into his business and sometimes it's very hard to string together 12 months worth of work and yeah. now it's it's a green screen. That's it. Yeah, that's what's exactly. leading into it that much. Maybe they'll design the floor so they don't have to green screen that, but everything else. Yeah, it's it's unreal. If I think back, you know, like I mean, I watch It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas, and just think about like, you know, the the bank or the you know the streetscapes or the you know the old the beautiful old house that, um, you know that they fix up. It's like. It's just, you can't, yeah, you can't replicate that. There's just like a texture and yeah, it's just, it's really, it's something special. And if you want to nail that era, like you've got to get all the little details. So a lot of research has to be done. You can't wing it. Yeah. Oh, exactly. It was, I I think there's just like a lack of distraction. Like there's just something really pure about, uh, you know, about it too. Like um, I had an amazing film professor at Western, Larry Garber, who um, really introduced me to a lot of like old screwball comedies, you know, like it happened one night with Claude Colbert or like, you know, um, His Girl Friday. And like, oh, it just, there's something just so like pure and clear and just like perfect about those films. 
See, I, we didn't study comedy in the film class I took at Brock University, but we did do um, uh, a bit of a section in my first year on uh, Hitchcock films. And oh, yes. I got I to gotta tell you, you know what makes those films so intense? It's the writing. It's just mm-hmm. like, I think it was Strangers on a Train and Double Indemnity we had to watch. And oh. I always forget, I think it's Double Indemnity where there's the insurance salesman where yes. he's like, it's in my yes. gut, Fred says McMurray this. and yeah, Barbara. And, yeah, and he would just like get into the scene and I'm just like, the guy's just talking about his gut saying, you're the villain. And it just turns the entire scene upside down. Like you could just see everyone sweating buckets. And I'm just like, yeah. what, what? Like it seems so silly, but at the same time it pulls me in going, oh my God, he totally oh, yeah. pulls. Oh yeah. And stuff that um, I feel like it, it's either plot points that would like scream past modern day audiences or something that would have one of those like, you know, explanation lines where it's like, for those of you who don't get it, there's the, like it, entire films rotated on one, like, you know, really either mysterious or alluring plot point. Like the, enti- the entire film would rotate on that single point. Um, yeah, there's just, it's just that sort of purity of focus. Um, yeah. And you think back to like Maltese Falcon or the big sleep or like, it just, oh, they're, they're just, yeah, you, the tension that you build um, it, with just like the simplicity and the clarity in those films. It's so great. Well, when you said that, uh, that like it just revolves around one plot point, uh, Citizen Kane popped into my head because mm, <laughs> it's all yeah. about Rosebud. <laughs> like yeah. who is or what is Rosebud? <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect example. Yeah. Okay. So not to not to belabor this point even further, but did you guys study Citizen Kane in film by any chance? No, no, I, I kind of came across it and came to it outside of, of, uh, of film, but. Cause we picked um, it apart for an entire lecture. And one thing that I found very interesting about that film going back to set design is, is that Orson Welles didn't have much of a budget. And so what they yeah. would do is when they would build a room, they would build it with two walls and they'd film it from one angle. So you thought you were on maybe the right side of the room and then they'd film it from another angle and maybe change the decor a little bit. So move the decor yeah. up painting around so it's like oh now we're on the left side of the room so he yeah. was a real pioneer in these these tricks to to save money without yeah. without compromising production values also I, what are you going to let like stand you know in your way like you're not you're not going to let budget stand in your way when you're like when you have when you've got a film like that that you just you you're so you just want to bring to life it's it's like it's it's your everything so like, the ingenuity it's like the you know what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, mm-hmm. who would you want to play you? I would say uh, I, I'm going to go Laura Dern for that one. I think she is. I think she's I think she's brilliant. I think she's sometimes underrated. I think she's not overexposed, which is wonderful. But I just think she just mixes like kind of. She she mixes sensitivity and intensity really well, and I like that about her. She's got incredible range. What was the show that she was on? It was the HBO show with um, Reese Witherspoon was in it? Um, Zoe oh, Kravitz. Big Little Lies. Big Little Lies. That's it. Like where she plays Renata. Oh yeah. She's absolutely nuts in it. Like oh. incredibly entitled when their fortune yep. starts to fall apart. But then at the same time, you forget that. She was the capable scientist in Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. I know. <laughs> At the same right? time, you're just like, oh, okay. I know. She's um she is a little bit of a um 
she well she's she's a chameleon right like she she disappears inside roles in such a beautiful way um and you almost like you sort of you sort of forget that it's her and i love i love actors that can do that she was in a wonderful um series that only lasted uh a couple of years um called enlightened and i don't know whether you've ever seen it but um she she plays like a woman who is like you know just sort of hell-bent on on you know uh corporate america and she's very like um extremely driven and she ends up um uh you know her entire professional life <laughs> like kind of implodes um and uh you know it's all about her trying to get her life back together and this sort of like awakening that she has it's a it's an hbo uh, mike white uh uh project anyway i i only knew about it because my wife was just obsessed with it and just thought it was like the, some of the most brilliant uh acting that she's ever seen so yeah, if you like her, check that out. As a side note, if you're looking for something to watch, have you checked out yeah. The Diplomat yet on Netflix? Carrie Russell just dropped no. last weekend. Yeah. My sister-in-law was just telling me that she started it and she was really liking it so far. Yeah, get to episode three. Sometimes episode one and two of those shows can be a little slow, but once it gets yeah. to three, this show takes off and you can't stop watching it. Okay, I will check that out. All right, follow-up. If Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? Oh, I'm going to I'm going to borrow a line from what I think is maybe my favorite series, The West Wing, a uh, little Aaron Sorkin line. Um, you know, they end like every big kind of uh, moment where they've they've sort of, you know, <laughs> uh, come through the fire and they, you know, the, the team and the staff comes together and says, OK, what's next? I, I think I would call it what's next. I think it was their final season. It was the um, the debate episode that they did live. <laughs> yep. Uh, I forget who it was. Oh God, the two actors. I just, it's funny because I know them by their character names, but Alan Alda and oh, he was in Star Wars. Tip of my tongue, and he was the Democratic candidate. I wanted uh, Aaron Jimmy Jimmy Smith. That's it. Aaron Sorkin doesn't get enough credit for that episode and just that whole storyline because he does yeah. a really good job of humanizing both sides of the aisle. Whereas oh if you, look, God, if you yeah. turn to the media, the media doesn't try to like if you're liberal media, you don't try to understand why conservatives think the way they do. And if you're conservative yeah. media, you try not to think that. And I remember that debate episode did a wonderful job of doing that. And the fact that it was done live to mimic a real yeah. debate, I really think that that like that was a great series. I'm with you on that. But that episode right on its own is a bit of a gem that deserves yeah. to stand out and get credit and special credit. And it doesn't. Yeah, I agree. I think it's. um it's like an episode that kind of uh, lives or it, it brings to life what that whole show tries to do and tries to stand for and tries to capture. Um, yeah, it's, there's a lot of magic in that show and, and with uh, so many of those actors, but I agree with you. It's a, that's a pretty special accomplishment. Your favorite book? Uh, White Teeth by Zadie Smith. Um, I just, I read it years ago and it is, the characters were so real to me. I found myself looking for them on the subway platform. Like I, I, it was a book I couldn't get out of my head. Um, and I could not believe that that was her debut novel. I think she was like 18, 19, maybe 20 when she wrote it. Like it's staggering. Your favorite song? Uh, You're My Best Friend by Queen. 
um, yeah, my wife and I, after we got married, that was the song that we walked back down the aisle to. And uh, yeah, I love it. The best advice you have ever received? I've been fortunate to be given a lot of good advice by people that I really trust. Um, but I think I, I was given one piece of advice um, by a mentor and former uh, former boss of mine. And, uh, you know, she just said, just remember, it's okay to say, that doesn't work for me. And I think <laughs> as someone who, you know, maybe is guilty sometimes of taking on, taking on too much and always thinking I have to do the next thing, it's, it was really powerful to, yeah, to just sort of be reminded of that fact um, to say, you know, just to, just to make sure that you continue to keep factoring yourself into the equation. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I think I would probably be doing something that maybe connects back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier. Um, I don't know necessarily that it would be um, public service. I think it would be something that like kind of blends public and private enterprise together. Um, I think I'm really interested in like social innovation and social entrepreneurship. I really like that sort of intersection of how, you know, interesting new, you know, fresh uh, business models can address like uh, social problems or can, you know, be harnessed for social change. There's, um, uh, there's a, uh, an organization called the Center for Social Innovation uh, in Toronto. Uh, it was founded by a woman who is a, a leader in the space, um, Tanya Sermon. And I've always kind of had my eye on that, uh, that outfit, that organization. So I think if I wasn't where I am, I think I would be working in you know, social enterprise and social change, social innovation. Becca, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Likewise. Thank you, Victor. It's been great. Great talking to you. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.